All right, you can turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49, just under, under God's providence, we're in verses 13 through 33 this morning. Verses 13 through 33. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for letting us come to your word right now. Lord, we, we sing to you as our sure and steady anchor. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to realize that in our hearts, God. That it would be more than words that we sing, but faith and trust in our hearts. And God, I pray that your word this morning, thank you, God, for bringing us to this, to this place. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather around the truth. And Lord, I pray that your word would provoke in us a faith that rests. God, let your word provoke in us this morning hope, trust, rest in you because you are trustworthy. You're a good God, worthy to be trusted. The mighty one. You're the shepherd. You're the stone. You're the almighty who blesses. You're all these things, God. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach our hearts this morning to rest in, in Christ, to rest in you. Please meet with us, Lord, and allow us to continue in worship through your word this morning. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's begin by just getting a hold of the background and the plain meaning of this text of Scripture that we're in right now. Jacob is literally on his deathbed. He's literally on his deathbed. In fact, you can read chapter 48, verse 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, that's Jacob speaking to Joseph, he says, Behold, I am about to die. But God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. You see two things in that verse. You see that he's on his deathbed, he's about to die. And you see that he's about to die as a man of faith. He's believing the promise to the very end, telling his son, God's going to take you back to that land that he promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to me. And so here he is in faith. And here he is on his deathbed. And what we see in chapter 49, verses 1 all the way to verse 27, is Jacob gathers up his 12 sons and he speaks to them these prophetic blessings. These prophetic blessings. To each one of these 12 sons, these prophetic blessings. Now why do I call them blessings? Listen to chapter 49, verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel... This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. So these are blessings. Why do I call them prophetic blessings? Look at verse 1, chapter 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. So he's speaking to them blessings to each son, but he's speaking about days that are yet to come. These are prophetic blessings. And he's speaking to them about their future. What we just read in verse 28 is he says, these are the 12 tribes. That's interesting. I thought he was talking to 12 individuals, 12 sons. Yes, but he's looking forward into their future when they become the 12 tribes of that nation called Israel. So it's looking into their future. Now he gives most, uh, you know, among these 12 sons, he gives most prominence to Judah and then to Joseph. We see him give prominence to Judah in verses 8 through 12. And we see Joseph in verses 22 through 26. 
And so as we've, as we've done throughout Genesis, as we've seen throughout Genesis, as we trace out that seed of the woman, and that's what we've seen all the way through Genesis, right? That seed of the woman, that promised seed that is to come. Well, these blessings help us to continue to trace out that seed. We realize that that seed is coming not only through Abraham, not only through Isaac, not only through Jacob, but which one of these 12 sons, and we realize through this blessing that that Messiah, that seed of the woman is coming through Judah, through Judah. As he says, the scepter will never depart from Judah. So Dustin covered verses 1 through 12 a couple of weeks back. That's the first four sons and their blessing. He selfishly took Judah. Not fair, right? And so what we got today is we've got the remaining eight sons and their blessings. That's verse 13 through 27. And then we've got the last paragraph, verse 28 through 33. We've got Jacob's death. We've got his final command and Jacob's death. He's going to breathe his last breath. So I hope you got a little background. I hope you know where we're going. Let's start in verse 13 and let's read to verse 33 together. Listen to God's word. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships. And his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people. As one of the tribes of Israel, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him. And harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you. By the almighty who will bless you. With blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph. And on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning devouring the prey. And at evening... Dividing the spool. So what we've just read is the final prophetic blessings on those last eight sons. Okay? And now we're about to read the final command from, from Jacob and his last breath. Listen to it, verse 28. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to work through this passage of Scripture by boasting in eight characteristics of God. I want us to look at eight characteristics of God. And, you know, you don't stop worship after you're done singing and then start learning. 
But the worship continues on from we worship God in song and then the preaching of the word. We worship God together through the preaching of his word. And so right now, as we look at these eight characteristics of God in this passage, let's worship the Lord together. Come and rejoice with me. Let's worship God for who he is. Number one, he is the sovereign orchestrator. He is the sovereign orchestrator. Here's the question. How can Jacob look at these 12 sons and gaze into their future and with such accuracy tell about the tribes that will come from them and the nation of Israel? How's he doing this? Because Jacob is a spokesman for the God who declares the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. That's Isaiah 46, verse 10. He's speaking for the God that knows the end from the beginning. And he puts someone there to speak about the end, what is to come from the beginning. So everyone knows that he's doing this. I will accomplish my purpose. Nobody will stop him. He is the sovereign orchestrator of all of history. I want you to just see this in a few of these verses. I don't, this doesn't have to turn into a mere history lesson. But listen to some of this accuracy of foreseeing these, these men and their tribes that are to come. So verse 13, Zebulun. What about Zebulun? Shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. So here, here we see the tribe of Zebulun. We've got their future location, where they're going to be. How does he know that? We've got their future major occupation. How does he know that? Because he's speaking for the God that sees it all. That sees the future as clearly as he does the past. A thousand years in the past as clearly as he does a thousand years in the future and today. And so he knows exactly where this tribe is going to set up. Look at Issachar. He's a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. So here's this tribe. This is a strong tribe. And yet they're going to give themselves to servanthood. They're going to give themselves to forced labor. Why? It says right here, because they saw that the land was pleasant and the land was good and they were willing to be servants in it. How does he know this? It's exactly how it plays out. Read the rest of your Bible. It's what you see. How does he know? Because our God declares the end from the beginning. Verse 16 and 17, Dan. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls, falls backwards. So here's another solid and accurate description of the future tribe of Dan. They would be a vicious people like vipers striking the horse and causing the horse and the rider to fall. That's the kind of people they'll be. Go read Judges chapter 20 about that tribe of Dan taking over, taking over the land there. You can go to the next, the next three. We don't have as much detail, but it's still accurate. Verse 19, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their hills. He'll constantly be in conflict. And that's exactly what went down. Asher. Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. It's saying something about the land where Asher will dwell. One commentator said this. Rich, fertile land provided olive trees and vineyards. The land could produce the finest of menus. Well, how does Jacob know that beforehand? Because he's speaking for the God that declares the end from the beginning, the sovereign one. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears fruitful thorns. It's like a deer that's free to roam. More than likely a reference to the fact that this tribe would have no northern border. So how does he know? How does he know this stuff? Because he's, he's speaking for the God that declares the end from the beginning. Let's skip Joseph. We're going to come back to him in more detail in a moment. Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning devouring the prey. And at the evening dividing the spoil. They would be like a ravenous 
conquering wolf. Another accurate picture of, of Benjamin, which was a small tribe, but valiant and dangerous warriors. In fact, I'll read to you Judges chapter 20, verse 16, says this about them. Among these were 700, talking about the Benjamites, among these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed and everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Ooh. It's like GCC man. <laughs> Not really. Okay. So here you have this accurate portrayal of these men and the tribes that are to come. Why? How does he know? Because, because this is the God that declares the end from the beginning. And why does he tell you the end from the beginning? Why does he do things like that? So that you'll know that he's a sovereign one. So you'll know that he will establish all of his purposes. He's the sovereign orchestrator. That's what he is. Now that's, you know, that's easy to believe on paper, right? Until something gets orchestrated that you don't like. And yet he's still the sovereign orchestrator of every individual in this list. Every family, every tribe, every nation. He holds the king's hearts in his hand and he turns the heart of the king whichever way he wishes. He's a sovereign orchestrator of all of history. Number two, he's the God who saves. He's the God who saves. Now, in the middle of these... Uh, in the middle of these prophetic blessings, there's this little eruption in prayer that almost seems out of place. He's talking about Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and Zebulun and Naphtali and Dan and on he goes. He's talking about these blessings, but right in the middle of it, you have this personal address to God. A little short moment where he just erupts in a personal address and prayer to God. And you can see it in verse 18. I will wait for your salvation, O Lord. I will wait for your salvation, O Lord. We're talking about the salvation of God. Our God is a God who saves. What does it mean to wait for His salvation? It means to trust in God for salvation. Think about it. It's like, I'm waiting here. My hope is in you. I'm waiting. I'm not going anywhere else for it. I'm waiting for you for your salvation. This is to trust God and to go nowhere else, to look to Christ and look nowhere else, to wait for Him and Him alone for salvation. This is the first appearance we have of that very important word, salvation, in the whole Bible. Salvation. Now, why at this very moment, why is Jacob thinking about the salvation of God? The salvation of the Lord. Here he is in the midst of these prophetic blessings. Why, why at this very moment? He's, he's on his deathbed. He's gathered up his 12 sons, speaking to them prophetic blessings about their future. And in that moment, he's thinking about your salvation, O Lord. Why is he thinking about the salvation of God? And it's because, listen to me, the, the whole book of Genesis has been, has been about the salvation of our God. Genesis chapter 1 through 3 set up the ultimate problem for us. That God created everything good, but Genesis chapter 3, mankind rebelled against Him. And because of our rebellion, we deserve hell. Because of our rebellion, we deserve the wrath of God. We're born into sin, born in the likeness of Adam. This is a huge problem. One day He's going to judge heaven and earth, and we stand before Him as sinful creatures that deserve His wrath. This is a problem. And yet all through Genesis, what do we see? Even right there at the very beginning of Genesis 3.15, that there's coming one who's going to be a savior, going to crush Satan's head. We see it in Abraham, that through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, there's these promises that there's coming that seed of the woman. He's going to be a savior. He's going to be a savior. And so then we see it right here. He's blessing the 12 sons and he's looking forward to when they become the 12 tribes of Israel and what's on his mind. The salvation of God is coming through these people. I wait, God, for your salvation. These are not just random stories. These are stories about 
The salvation of God. So think about Jacob there. He's on his deathbed. Think about that. You're about to die, Jacob. And you're screaming out, I'm waiting for something. He's waiting for salvation. Now, I can't help, I can't help but think about Simeon. Luke chapter 2. You don't have to flip there unless you're really, really fast. Luke 2 verse 25. Listen to this about Simeon. Now there was a man in Jerusalem. Jesus is a small child at this point. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The one we're waiting on all through the Old Testament. And can you imagine the invincibility of this man? That the Holy Spirit reveals to him that you are not going to die. You will not breathe your last breath until you see that Christ that everyone's been waiting on. That you've been waiting on. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus... To do for him according to the custom of the law. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Can you imagine Simeon there holding the Lord's Christ? He's holding the one that, the, that he's been waiting on. And what does he say? Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. You know, the redneck version is now I can die. Now I can die. Because what? Why? Verse 20. Verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. What's he looking at? He's looking at the Lord's Christ. My eyes have seen your salvation. He waited and then saw the salvation of the Lord. It reminds me of Jacob on his deathbed. I wait for your salvation. He's the God who saves. Our God's the God who saves. Number three, he is the mighty one. He is the mighty one. Now it actually says that really clearly in verse 24. But I want you I want to start in verse 22 because the rest of these attributes or characteristics of God are going to come out of Joseph's prophetic blessing. So let's just get a little plain sense here. Verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by spring. His branches run over the wall. So the picture is, is he's so fruitful and growing so big that like literally it's going outside of his territory over the wall, low-hanging fruit there. That's Joseph. Verse 23. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile. Now, why? Why, was he remain, why did he remain unmoved? Why does his arms remain agile? And you get three by these statements. By the mighty one, look at it. By the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you. By the almighty who will bless you. Who held Joseph up? The mighty one, the, the almighty who blesses. The God of your Father who will help you. So here's number three. Right there in verse 24, it says, By the hands of the mighty one. So number three, our God is the mighty one. This Hebrew word is used six times in your Bible, and all six times they refer to God. That God is this mighty one. This is the strength of God. Think about it. This is the power of God. He's the omnipotent one that does whatever he pleases, whenever he pleases, however he pleases. None can stay his hand. Who can stop him? He's the mighty one. This is the God that helped Joseph. This is so foundational. I want you to think about how foundational the might and power of God actually is. That he could be the God of salvation, but if he doesn't have the power to fulfill and accomplish His plans of salvation, it means nothing. This power of God is foundational. Listen to how A.W. Pink said this. He said, Without the power of God, His mercy would be feeble pity. 
Without the promises of God, excuse me, without the power of God, his promises are empty sounds. Without the power of God, his threatenings are mere scarecrows. The power of God. You want to read about just the mere edges of his ways, just the mere edges of God's power? Go read Job 26, where it says that our God stretches out the north over empty space. And listen, he hangs the earth on nothing. It says that the the heavens and the pillars of the heavens tremble at his rebuke. And it goes on to say, that's just the mere edges of his ways. What we can see and what we can understand are just whispers compared to the thunder of God's power. He's the mighty one. He's the mighty one. Number four. He's the shepherd. You see it there in verse 24 again. By the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. For there, from there is the shepherd. He's called the shepherd. Not only the sovereign, not only the savior, and not only the mighty one, but it says here, he's the shepherd. Now, that's, that's a description of God that's full of tenderness, right? I mean, these things almost don't even fit in my, in my mind or your mind. Think about this. How can he be the mighty one of power and the gentle shepherd? You know, we're the dumb sheep and he's the gentle shepherd. How, how, do, these, how do these things go together? That he's the mighty one, he's the shepherd. It's, uh, it's similar to Revelation chapter 1. Remember Revelation chapter 1 when John the apostle saw Jesus in his glory and it scared him to death. It said he fell down as if a dead man and he's trembling before in the presence of that one because he's the mighty one. He's the omnipotent one and he's trembling before him. And all of a sudden he feels this gentle touch on his shoulder and he hears these gentle sh- shepherdly words. Be not afraid. How do these things go together? And yet they go together in our God and they go together in Christ. He's our shepherd. This reminds us of his, when we think of him being a shepherd, of his wise guidance for us, of his sweet provision, and of his fierce protection. Go read Psalm 23, you can see it. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, shall not want. It says, he he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside beside still waters. This This is the guidance, the wise guidance of God. It goes on to say, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because your rod and your staff, they comfort me. My God is the fierce protector of his people. He beats back the wolves and beats back the enemy. So his rod and his staff, they comfort me. He's a fierce protector. It goes on to say that he, he sets the table uh, in the present, before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows He's a sweet provider for his people. He's a shepherd. Now you imagine Joseph's life. Joseph could look back over his life with all the pain, all the trials, all the hardship. Imagine, do you remember what that man went through? And all along the way, he could see the wise guidance of God and the sweet provision of God and the enemies being beat back by his fierce protector. He could see it in the midst of all that happened in his life. He could see it all along the way that that's his shepherd. That's his shepherd. And even at the end of his life, if you remember what he says, he says, what you meant for evil, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. What you meant for evil, God meant it for good. He's been my shepherd all along the way. Number five, he is the stone. He is the stone. Still right there in verse 24. By the, by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd. Then it says, the stone of Israel. What a name for God. The stone. This is, this is highlighting his constancy, his constancy, his, his firmness. He's the faithful one. He's the immovable stone. The unshakable one. That's who he is. He is the the stone. If you remember, some of you may have this memory of 
You remember a time when, when you were young enough as a child that your dad just seemed invincible to you. Your dad was just a man. Like, no one could stop him. Nobody could hurt you when you're in the presence of your dad. You remember that time when you were a kid? You were real young? We, we used to boast on the playground. My dad can beat up your dad. We used to say stuff like that. Now, of course, no man is that way, but there's a certain time as a kid you feel that way. Do you ever remember being scared to death when you were alone and then sprinting and you finally get to your dad and that, and that peace that you feel in that moment, that firmness, that safety you feel in that moment when, when you're with your invincible dad. And that's the feeling and he's the stone. Our God is the unshakable stone, the firm one that never moves. Everything else around you is shifting and changing, but he's the unchanging stone, the immutable one. He doesn't shift. He doesn't, he doesn't change. So when you trust him, when you stand on his word and trust him, you are not placing your feet on a shaky and unreliable bridge. You ever been on a shaky and unreliable bridge? Well, that's not what you're setting your feet on. When you trust him and trust his word, you're on a solid, immovable, reliable stone. This is the reason in Psalm 61, verse 1 and 2, where the psalmist is talking about, he's saying these anxieties that are within me. He says, when my heart faints within me, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. He's a refuge for us. Lead me to the rock. Lead me to the stone. When my heart faints within me. Now surely, surely in a group like this, there's people that need to be reminded. Maybe you feel like everything's shaky around you. Maybe you feel like everything is, is nothing seems secure. Well, you need to flee to the rock. You imagine what Joseph felt in his life. Joseph had storms all around him. Imagine the storms around Joseph's life of his brothers that hated They hated him. His brothers that sold him into slavery. Of being imprisoned unjustly. Being forgotten and left for dead in the, in the dungeon. Just imagine all those moments. And yet every single moment he could remember his God. He could remember those promises he received as a young boy. And he could rest his feet on the rock. On the stone that is God. Now this reminds me of a poem from a lady named Betty Stam. Betty Stam was a missionary to China in the early 1900s. In fact, her and her husband were beheaded for their faith. If you haven't read their biography, I would encourage you to do that. Sweet biography of martyrs in the faith, killed for their faith. And she writes a poem that's about these storms all around and these rocks all around her, and she comes later to the realization that those rocks, that stone, is God. And I want to share it with you before we move on. I'm standing, Lord. There is a mist that blinds my sight. Steep, jagged rocks front, left, and right. Lower, dim, gigantic in the night. Where's the way? I'm standing, Lord. The black rock hems me in behind. Above my head, a moaning wind chills and oppresses my heart and my mind. I'm afraid. I'm standing, Lord. The rock is hard beneath my feet. I nearly slip, Lord, on the sleet. So weary, Lord, and where a seat? Still must I stand? He answered me. And on his face... A look ineffable of grace, of perfect understanding love, which all my murmuring did remove. I'm standing, Lord, since thou hast spoken, Lord, I see thou hast beset these rocks are thee. And since my love, since thy love encloses me, I stand and I sing. Our God is the stone. Number six. He is the God who helps. He's the God who helps. We see that right here in verse 25. By the God of your father, who will help you? By the God of your father, who will help you? Now that's an amazing thought, is it not? 
the sovereign one would help. The almighty one would be called, would allow himself to be called in his word, helper. It's an amazing thought. He had every reason and every right to stand at a distance and just watch as we destroy ourselves or even lean in and destroy us himself. Every right and reason. And yet it says he's a God who helps. That's what he's like. He's the God who helps. Now he's not like hired help. We pay him and so he helps. We earn it and so he helps. He's gracious help. He helps those that, that, that are un, undeserving. He helps those that are even ill-deserving. He helps even his enemies. This is not hired help. This is gracious help from God. It says here, the God of your father who will help you. Abraham didn't deserve it, and yet God helped. Isaac didn't deserve it. Jacob didn't deserve it. Even Joseph did not deserve it, and yet God was a help to him. All of Israel and all the tribes of Israel, none of them deserve God's help, and yet God had been a help to them. I don't deserve his help. You don't deserve his help. And yet that's what he is. He's, he's the one that helps. What an amazing thing to say about the sovereign one. Now, how far is he willing to go? How far is he willing to go? And I'll put this verse before you to show you the, uh, how far he's willing to go to help. Romans 8.32. I've probably never quoted it before in this setting. Romans 8.32. It's talking about, remember, him who did not spare his own son. Don't you love that phrase? Not him, he who did not spare. Think about it. How far is he willing to go to help? He who did not spare his own son. You get that? That he, he was willing to lay down his son as a sacrifice in your place. That Jesus would die in your place. That Jesus would, would come underneath the wrath of God so you don't have to. He who didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How we not also freely in Christ give us all things? How far is he willing to go to help? He's a God of help. Number seven, he's the almighty who blesses. He's the almighty who blesses. Still in verse 25. By the God of your father who will help you, by the, here it is, by the almighty who will bless you. By the almighty who will bless you. He'll bless you. A blessing is this, this bestowal of divine favor and divine goodness. It's contrasted throughout the scripture with its opposite, which is cursing. So he won't, he's a God who blesses. And yet we also know about cursing, its opposite. So this divine favor, divine goodness being bestowed. Now God's blessing is a theme all the way through Genesis. And really all the way through the Bible, we've got this theme of God's blessing. Here's what I mean. Genesis chapter 1, God creates Adam and Eve. And it says, verse 28, and God blessed them. Genesis 1, 28, and God blessed them. Then we get to Genesis chapter 3, and man rebels against God, and the blessing has been lost. Instead, they receive curses from God. Instead of blessing, they, they win cursing for themselves. We see that in Galatians 3.10, it's not just on Adam and Eve. As many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, Curse are those who do not obey all things written in the book of the law to do them. Galatians 3.10, that we're all under the curse by nature. Under the curse. But what we know about God, and Genesis shows us this, is that He is the relentless blesser. He, he is, he's, the, he's the gracious, relentless blesser. We get to Genesis chapter 12, and, we, and, and literally chapter 12 all the way to the end, chapter 50, we have it laid out that the cursed ones, there's a way that they can become blessed ones again. There's a, one that they can, there's a way they can be restored into the blessing of God. And through Abraham, he speaks about one that's coming, and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and on, that there's one who's coming. He says, I'm going to bless you, and in your Descendants in your seed, all nations will be blessed. 
And we know that Christ is that one. Galatians 3.13. It says he's redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. So that, so that the blessing of Abraham might come upon us who believe in Christ. He's the God who blesses. Now how, how great is his blessing? How amazing and beautiful and great is the blessing of God? Well, you can get a little microcosm of it here as he speaks to Joseph. Look at it. Verse 25 says, The Almighty who will bless you. And then just look at, look at the way it's laid out. How great is the blessing? Look at it. With blessing of heaven above. Blessing of the deep that crouches beneath. So that's as high and as low as you can go. The blessings of the breast and of the womb. The, and here's the real kicker. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. Blessings up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. Hills. How great is his blessing? Well, if this is the microcosm, even, even more so with his people. What does it say in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3? It says that God has blessed us, those who have repented of their sins and put their faith in Christ, chosen before time began. That, that, that group of people, it says, they've been blessed with every, listen to it, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's massive. Every spiritual blessing. He's the God who blesses. And number eight, last characteristic of God here. He is the source of our endurance and our effectiveness. He's the source of our endurance and our effectiveness. Now remember when we start, if you start in verse 22 and you're looking at Joseph's prophetic blessing. It says, starting in verse, it talks about him in 22, then you get to verse 23, and it says, The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, harassed him severely. So imagine that situation. Attacked severely. But, how does Joseph respond? His bow remained unmoved. That's endurance. His bow remained unmoved. He's steady, steadfastness, endurance. His arms were made agile. That's accurate in his shot, effective in his shot. Now how? Where does he get this endurance and effectiveness from? What's the source? We'll keep reading. It says, by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. How does his hand stay steady on that bow? By the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. So try to think about the visual that's given to us there. There's a picture you're supposed to be seeing in your mind when you read that. You're supposed to be seeing war. Joseph being severely harassed. He's being shot at by the archers, it says. Imagine arrows whizzing by his head. He's being attacked here. Severely harassed and attacked. So Joseph, here's the picture. Joseph grabs his bow to return fire. But he's overwhelmed. He's outnumbered. How's he going to keep the bow steady? How's he going to make an accurate shot back? How? It says, by the hand of the mighty one of Jacob. That's how. It's this beautiful picture of a man overwhelmed, outnumbered. How's he going to stay steady? And he's got his hands on the bow, and yet there's these invisible arms that wrap around him and put one hand on his hand and another hand on his hand so he remains steady and he makes accurate, effective shots. That's the visual. That's the picture that we're given. So why was Joseph able to endure his trials? God's hand. You know, the scripture says that Joseph was fruitful in the land of his affliction. We even see that here in this blessing. He's fruitful in the land of his affliction. Why was he able to be effective and fruitful? Because of God's hand. Grace Community Church, we must go to war. We must fight the good fight of faith. We have to take up the bow, destroy the enemy, remain steadfast under fire. We have to do all of that. But if we do not have the hand of the mighty one, we will not do it. We've got to have the hand of the mighty one. Psalm 127 verse 1. Unless the Lord 
Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build. God is the source of our endurance and our effectiveness. So that's eight characteristics of God from this passage of Scripture, okay? Eight characteristics. He's a sovereign orchestrator. He's a God who saves. He's the mighty one. He's the shepherd. He's the stone. He's the God who helps. He's the God who blesses. And he's the source of endurance and effectiveness. Let's close with a therefore, okay? Therefore. We see this about God. Therefore, what do we do? And here's the therefore. Brothers and sisters, trust God. Put your faith in Him. Has He not shown Himself to be trustworthy? Trust Him. Believe His Word. Cling to His promise. Hold fast to faith in this glorious God. Now Jacob, in the final paragraph, verse 28-33, through Jacob gives us an example of faith. Jacob gives us an example in that final command that he gives and then his death. He gives us an example of trusting God, an example of faith, okay? And so you see it, like I said, in verse, starting in verse 28, you got the final command. And really, look at verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Then, so here it is. Here's the final command and instructions to his sons. Then he commanded them and said to them, and really his command, if, as you read it, he's just telling them one thing. But as you read it, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And, and, and it's, it's very, it's, it's repetitious in the sense of more and more detail keeps being given. In that sense. Here's the picture I have in my head. When you look at your kids, you look at one of your kids and you say, do the dishes. That's it. That's the command. Do the dishes. But you're scared it's not going to get done. So you say, take the clean ones out of the dishwasher and put them up in the cabinet. And shut the cabinet doors. And then take the dirty ones and wash them off where you put them in there and put them in the dishwasher. Start it. Start the dishwasher. (laughs) Spray out the sink and get all that mess out of there. Now, all you had to say was do the dishes, but you, you just you felt like it's not going to get it done. So you go detail, detail, detail. It's just repetitious detail. Listen to the way he lays this out. He's really telling them one thing, but look at verse 29. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite. That's it. Yes, sir. Keep going. In the cave that is in the field at Machpelah. Yes, sir. To the east of Mamre. Yes, sir. In the land of Canaan. Yes, sir. Which Abraham bought with a field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. Yes, sir. There they buried Abraham and Sarah. Okay. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. Yes, sir. And there I buried Leah. Yes, sir. I got it. The field. And the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. You got it? (laughs) Then it says, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, (laughs) he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Now, why? why? Why is Jacob talking like this? Because he wants to make sure it's done exactly as he says. It's really important to him After he dies, where his body is buried, it must be buried. Take my body back to that land that doesn't belong to us, but God promised he's going to give it to us. Take my body to that place and bury me there. Why does this matter so much? Because he believes God's promise. This is evidence of faith. This man didn't just say stuff like that, like, yeah, name it, claim it, that's mine. No, God really told him. That that land is going to belong to them. And he really believes it. And the evidence of that is how important it is that when I die, you bury me there, not in Egypt. You bury me there. And that land promised. And so he draws his last breath. And he dies as a man clinging to the promises of God. He's trusting the God that we just worshipped 
Just a moment ago, he's, he's believing those words to his very last breath. Hebrews eleven thirteen, 13. Jacob was a part of this group. He says, these all died in faith. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, embraced them. Embraced them. So that's my prayer, and that's what I want to pray right now for Grace Community Church, every brother and sister in this room. That listen to me, that one day you're going to draw your last breath, your very last breath, and you're done on this earth. You're done in this life. And my prayer is that this God that we're talking about, the stone, the Almighty One, the one who blesses, the one who is strong beyond imagination, that your heart would cling to Him Trust Him, faith in His promises to your very last breath, and then you would just die and go be with Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for these words, and thank You, Lord, that we can worship You. You are all these things, Lord. You're our sovereign God in control of it all, and we worship You. You're the God who saves. You're our Savior, Lord. You sent Christ to save us. And we worship you for that. You're the mighty one, Lord. You do whatever you want. All that you please, God. No one can stop you. And we worship you, Lord. You're our shepherd, Lord. Thank you for your tenderness and your gentleness with us, Lord. Your compassion and your wise counsel and your word, God. Thank you for protecting us and providing for us, Lord. Thank you, God, that you are the stone. Thank you, God, for letting us sit our feet upon the rock and be immovable because we stand on you. Thank you, Lord, that you're the God who helps and you're the God who blesses. And God, we confess you as all all of our strength, all of our endurance, all of our fruitfulness and effectiveness, God. It's only because of you, Lord. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Nothing, Lord. We believe that. And so, God, we trust you. Lord, help us to trust you more. Lord, we believe you. Help our unbelief. Help our unbelief, Lord. Fill our hearts with trust. And, God, I pray for my brothers and sisters, every one of us in this room, that you would help us to make it to the very end. That, like Jacob, when we breathe our last breath, that we would be found as those clinging to your promises. Help us, God, please, in Jesus' name, amen.